Okay, so today's service, as I said, is different. It's sort of a follow-up from last night's concert, but for anybody who's attended a jazz concert or listened to jazz on the radio or seen a show on TV, uh, it's appropriate. So I've created some slides, and the very first one that I created was titled, What's Going On Up There?, referring to what are the musicians doing up on stage. I realize that we're in a house of worship and that it has another meaning. And I realized, too, after the tragedies of the last few days that it has another meaning. And I'm just going to diverge a second. <clears throat> and I wonder what's going on, too. And I'm sad. Uh, I'm sad for all those people who are killed, who are targeted just for who they are and what they believe. I'm fearful. I'm fearful for us that we as a liberal congregation, can we be a target? I'm especially fearful that the, that the face of terrorism in the United States are angry, middle-aged white men. And I hope things change soon. Okay, so what is going on up there? Last night, uh, for those of you who, who attended, you heard us playing music. And some of us had music on our stands. I keep mine on an iPad. The other musicians had paper music. And this is what we see. Okay, there's not much to it. This is a fairly well-known jazz standard, Have You Met Miss Jones? And as you can see, there's a few notes on the page. There's um, some letters. I don't know for those of you in the back who can see it. Um, there's like F-M-A-J-7 and then F-sharp with a circle and a 7. Okay, these are all chord notations. And this is what I work off of. And what, um, when musicians are soloing, what they work off of. So on the side here, I have some terminology that we musicians use. The whole piece of paper we call a chart. The song itself, that one sh sheet, is called the head. Okay? So very, you know, very often musicians will say, we'll play the head twice through. And typically in jazz, that's what happens. You take the head, you play it through twice. Okay. In this case, too, you'll also hear musicians also talk about the form of the music. And in this case, you'll see I wrote up there A-A-B-A. -A -A. Okay. So the first, if you can count measures, does everybody know what a measure is in music? I'm going to get to that in a second. But if you look over here, each of these sections are called measures. Okay, they're divided up by bar lines. The form of this case, of this piece of music is A A B A, which means the first eight measures are an A. This it repeats, so you have another A. Then the middle portion is a different set of chords, usually a different ch it transitions to a different key. So you have eight measures of what is B and what you might also be here as the bridge. And then it repeats, the last eight measures are pretty close to identical to what the first eight measures are. So you have A, A, B, the bridge, and then return to the A. That is the form of the music. Solo break I have up there. For those of you who were here last night, we, got to, we played through the head twice, and suddenly everybody stops. The drums stop, I stop. And we have two measures. If you look at the last two measures, there's, it's mostly empty. And what happens is everybody stops and the soloist, the first soloist, introduces his solo over those two measures. And that's when you really hear some very interesting, um, 
turns and and uh, and licks going on. And he's introducing his solo during those two breaks. But the drums, the keyboard, and the bass are all silent. And that is called the solo break. So what's the solo order? Um, many times we discuss this in advance. You know, we'll say, uh, you know, sax, you'll go first, keyboards, you'll go, whoops, you'll go second, uh, bass, usually bass is last, but not always. But sometimes we don't talk about solo order, so how do we know what's going on? And this is where it takes a lot of concentration on the audience's part to watch what's going on, because there's a lot of subtle communication going on, okay? So uh, last night, for instance, our sax player, Tom, he would very often just, just very subtly turn and nod to the keyboard player. And the keyboard player would be watching him. And he, he knew that was his turn to solo. And then the keyboard player would look up at me and say, you ready? Basically, I mean, he's communicating this not in words, but he's kind of giving me a little nod so I know that I'm next. Okay. And then and we just go around that. Now, a lot of times, we, I have the term trading fours up there. After the bass solo, we do something called trading fours, where each of the musicians solos for four measures, and then the drums solo for four measures. So essentially, we're trading off with the drums. And it could be trading fours, it could be trading eights, eight measures, but that's another term you'll often hear. So when you're listening and you see, oh, these guys are playing, oh, now the drums are playing, oh, now, now a musician's playing. Oh, now the drums. It's very coordinated. So it's either four or eight measures of trading, trade off between a musician and, and the drums. And then we go back to the head. So after everybody's gone around, they've done their solos, they've done their things. Oh, by the way, another thing that I don't have up here. For those of you who were here last night, I don't know if you paid attention to the person who was not soloing. Okay. Tom especially, everybody is listening very intently to the soloist. Not only keep track of where he is in the, in the piece, but listening to what he's doing and seeing if you can pick up on some of those chord changes and some of the things that that musician is doing during his solo. So if you ever go to a concert, you will, you will see that they're all gathered around, you know, they'll be holding their instruments and they'll be just kind of doing this thing. All right, they're all listening very carefully. So how do we know where to go when all the solos are done? <clears throat> Usually, as I said, the bass is last or it'll be trading fours. Traditionally, what, the, what happens is that the musicians go back and, and play the head again two more times. Now, sometimes everybody's like real excited and, you know, when are we going back? When, you know, we're not really sure. The bass player is really having a great time. He's soloing and soloing. Somebody will do this. So if you ever see... One of the players touches head. What he's communicating is we're going back to the head. We're going back to the beginning and we're going to play this twice and we're going to go out. Okay. So there's, there's some of the things that go on, um, when, when we're playing. By the way, I've denominated these things conversations. So I welcome any comments or questions or anything like that. Okay. Um, now, this is a, the same piece of music, Have You Met Miss Jones? And very often, that's all I'll see on a, on a page. Just chord changes. All right. 
And one of the things that musicians have to know is what those codes mean. And what I do is I turn that into something called a walking bass line, which I'm going to play in a second, and I think you'll all recognize it for what it is. So let me open this link. Everything takes a second, and I'm heavily dependent on technology. going to play for a that was a skill that bass players just have to learn. It's just part of the basic jazz, jazz language. And I want to dispel a myth. So everybody knows or thinks that the solos are made up right there, right? Yes? Yes. So in a way, it is. Um, none of the musicians who played solos last night had anything written in front of them. But I can guarantee you that all of them have studied for years. First, what all those chord changes mean. I keep calling them changes because that's the lingo, um, chord changes. All right? But each of these coded things like, say, F, M-A-J-7, F with a little hashtag on there, what that means is a sharp sign, all those things indicate notes that need to be played, and those are the notes that I was playing. But every musician has studied and studied and studied all, the, all their chords, all their scales. The other thing that happens in jazz is, well, if you were an English major and you lifted somebody's paper, you would get in trouble, all right? It's called plagiarism. But in music, plagiarism is highly thought of. And what we all do is we listen to other masters and copy what they do. And then we try and change it up a little bit, maybe to make it our own. And that's not an easy thing. Sometimes we'll sit for hours and transcribe the solos. In other words, we'll listen to it and then write down on paper what we're hearing. I have spent hours uh, trying to transcribe a very short solo by Ray Brown. And I finally did it and kind of turned it into my own. But that is, that is what we're doing when we're soloing. We're studying the chords. We are um, listening to other people's music. We're copying what they're doing. We're turning it into our own. And then the other thing is to practice what's called licks, um, just little turns of music, little chunks of music that we can fit in. One thing Tom did last night, for those of you who heard, he would borrow another piece of music and stick it into his solo. 
So he may have been playing one thing and then took a whole other piece of music and played it for two or three bars. For those of you who heard that, it is a skill. It is a real skill. Not one that I've mastered too well. Occasionally I can do it, but not too often. So that's what's going on up there. Any questions, comments? Anybody want to? She's got a quiet Sunday morning. Yes. seen there is the a a portion is played twice so remember i made said the form is a right. so the first part where you see the g g hyphen and c7 right. is the first what's called the first ending okay. okay then i go back there's a little double bar with some dots and i go back to the beginning play those first six bars and jump to the second ending there's a little two there yeah. so that's the a part being played twice Yeah, yeah, he's a musician. I, as I was say, I was saying that in the back of my head, I'm thinking Mike is going to kill me if he hears that. No, he's a musician too, definitely. Don't tell him. Okay, so in the beginning of the song. I will play the root of the chord for those of you who know what chords are. So you have a basic note like the F and F chord is F, A, and C. So normally I try to start the beginning of the tune with the root of the chord, but that gets boring after a while. So as I get into it, I will play from the thirds, the fifths, and the sevenths of the chord. So all this math stuff, you have to know, for instance, the the first chord is F, what is it, F major seventh. You have to know the notes that are in that chord or in that scale. So there's a whole variety of notes that I can draw on. F, A, C, I can play a B flat in there. I can play an E flat in there. So all those things I try and fit in. But because this, this one is four, four time, and you sound like you're a musician, okay, four beats in a measure, I'm, basically that's what I'm playing is, is those four notes in a bar. Yes. Um, I don't Mike said it's in bars and I didn't know like looked like he was looking for a letter. Yeah, occasionally he Mike had a stretch to see where Bart was in his playing. He was listening to him, but yeah. de definitely there was a little bit of a visual problem. Yeah. Mike is a good drummer. Um, and secondly, I heard the answer and I got a little bit gone. <laughs> okay. Okay, 55 years, 57 years, whatever. That's how. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. I don't know, know any other way of describing it is that I've had not, I've only had this bass for a year, but the fingerboards are this, all basically the same length, so the notes are in the same place. 
So after a while, you just know where your notes are. And I teach, I give lessons to beginning bass players. And one of the things I try and teach first is you have to know where your notes are on the fingerboard. You just can't be thinking about it and going, oh, this one's over here. I, we put dots on there, on there's fingerboards, yes. Okay, so my next discussion has to do with rhythm. <laughs> and and uh, I've titled this one, Houston, We Have a Problem. And this is ded dedicated to all of you white folks <laughs> who have a very distinct problem clapping on two and four. <laughs> now, I have been here, last week I was here, and we, and we sang Lean on Me, and we did a phenomenal job of clapping on two and four. But I've been here other weeks when... <laughs> we devolve into this one and three routine. <laughs> so, um, again, for those of you who are not musicians, I, I've put up here an example of what a bar look, bars look like. The top one, um, has it says a time signature, and you'll see four over four. And what that indicates is that there are four beats in a measure. That's the top four. And the bottom four says that the quarter note gets a beat. So you can see one, two, three, four. The next two are different time signatures, three, four, and two, four. There are all kinds of other time signatures, six, eight, five, four. But for today, right now, we're just concerned about four, four, and beating four beats to a measure. Now, I'm gonna put on a couple of links, and I want everybody, the first one is, is the first one, is is a sort of a trick. And I want you to, you're gonna have a whole minute to figure out whether they're clapping on the one and three or two and four. Clap. Clap. Figure it out. Whoop. But you have to decide, is it one and three or two and four? Three and four. One, two. Or is it? <laughs> I got people swinging. <laughs> okay, so that one's sort of a musical trick. Here's another one. This one is hysterical. Um, wait, wait, what was the answer? Two and four. Now, this one is Harry Connick Jr. playing at a concert. And he's playing, singing at, singing at the piano, and you can see the audience clapping on one and three. Now, if you kind of pay attention, about 40 seconds in, something happens. You can clap with the audience on one and three. One. He's gonna show the audience. There they are, clapping happily on one and three. Listen.
three, four. Now they're clapping on two and four. How many of you caught that? Here's what I want you to do. Clap gently to yourself. I'm going to just, they're going to show the audience clapping. These lovely young ladies are clapping on one and three. And you can go one, three, four. But keep clapping and count. Three, four. Three, four, one, two. One, two, three. Now you're clapping on two and four. <laughs> How many of you caught the difference that uh, transitioned from one and three to two and four? No, Gary. Ah, you have to count in your head. One, so, okay. There's a slide here, and I, there's a like one second thing here, and I'm not going to spend the time finding it. The drummer is playing, you can barely see him here, but the drummer's behind it. When it transitions to two and four, the drummer does this. Drummer cheers. Uh, so, so, watching him, and I've heard the concert, do you think up there his mind is clenching? Like yes. That's exactly what's and going on. What he did, all he did was add one beat to one measure. So he had five beats in one measure. There's another video on here where somebody goes into a detailed explanation. Okay. Okay, there's nothing. Okay. Yeah, one is a lonely number. So there is music that lends itself to beating on one and three, especially a lot of folk style music. But traditionally, our music is the heavy beat. If you listen to a drums like last, last night, any of the jazz tunes we were playing, a lot of the heavy beats are on the two and the four. So it is just the way the music is written. And there's a long, there's a lot of, if, if you want to get into articles and esoteric stuff, you can talk about African-American uh, music and how that changed our music and how the beats, the emphasis on the beats have changed over time. So I want to now try something. So I have, I would like everybody to stand. We're just going to practice. So all we're going to do is I've got my metronome up here. It's very visual and you can hear it. And we're just going to go back and forth a little bit. Just back and forth and see if we can get... Get that rhythm going. Then we're just going to clap for every beat. All four beats. Now we're going to practice two and four. Back to four. Now we're going to do eight. Don't speed up. I won't do triplets. 
One. On the beat. On two and four. All right. We got it. We got it. We got it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Stay, stand, stay standing. Stay standing. Whoop. So now we're going to practice with the First Unitarian Rochester Youth Group. And you can sing along with this one. Get that rhythm. You got to move. It starts a little rough here, but. We all have sorrow. All right. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're running short of time, and I have more things that I want to do here. So, <laughs> so remember, two and four. <clears throat> so music has always been part of my life, uh, just about forever. My mom played piano, and so there was always a piano in the house. I took lessons for a while, but like most kids... I just did not want to practice. Uh, I have this mental image that's kind of stuck in my head of me standing by my living room window when I was supposed to be practicing and watching my friends play outside. So I quit. I was probably eight or nine years old. When I started junior high school and the term middle school hadn't been adopted yet, I started playing bass. How I started is a matter of debate. My father had a version of the story that I don't recall happening at all. Since he's no longer with us, my version is the official version. <laughs> I recall him telling me, when you go to school, go to the orchestra teacher and find out what they need. So I did. Of course, no one was playing bass at the tender age of 12. Shortly after I, I started, my father hired a teacher, and I had lessons until I graduated from high school. He also bought me a bass, one that I still have, not this one. And from there, playing became a major part of my life. <clears throat> now, I know that most UUs don't believe in heaven or hell or even think of it as a place. However, I have seen hell. I have been there, and I even have a picture of it. <laughs> so there I am, probably around 12 years old, a lone bass player with 27 accordions. <laughs> I have no memory of how I got there. 
I suspect that the teacher contacted my father. I don't remember playing very much with him. What I do remember, though, is that after rehearsals, we pack up my bass and put it in my dad's 1960 Chevy Impala, the one with the white stripe on the side, and we drive home and watch an episode of Combat, a World War II TV series with Vic Morrow. It's kind of amazing what sticks in your brain. I played a lot, practiced, took lessons, and did very well. In New York, the New York State Music Association sponsored all county and all state music programs. In my high school, I was always first chair. At all county, I was first chair. As a high school junior, it was a big deal just to audition for all state and be selected for the all state orchestra. The first one that I attended was at the Concord Hotel in the Adirondacks. Once selected, you have to re-audition uh, for the chairs where you're seated uh, in, in various positions. Again, I have another mental image of hanging around the rehearsal hall when the teachers came out to announce chairs. I heard my name, but not the chair. To my surprise, I was selected as first chair. Holy mackerel. It was an absolute honor. But on reflection, though, I was not really prepared. Being a section leader requires skills other than good playing, and those skills I didn't have at that time. The following year, Allstate was in Buffalo, and again, I was selected as first chair. Uh, I have a couple of clips from Newsday. Okay, no swooning, ladies. <laughs> um, the article, both articles end with um, state, what does it say? State chairman do not recall any other uh, student having captured uh, first on chair honors two years in a row. Well, enough bragging. From age, of thir from age 13, I was in a band called the Alley Cats. We actually played gigs for money. In fact, I think we made the same amount then as I do now. <laughs> we, played, we played dance music for adults. It was a real education watching grown-ups drink, smoke, and party. And um, so I'm just going to do one other thing here. I have, oh my goodness, where did I put it? Um, oh, here it is. Hang on. Don't go away. This is the Alley Cats from 1965. Okay, enough of that one, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, next, uh, I attended my 50th high school reunion last October, and one of my bandmates was there, and he had acquired this tape from another band member. So, so I got a hold of it and, and played it for this. Um, we played, uh, the Alley Cats played uh, at the New York State World's Fair at the uh, New York Pavilion. And I even have a certificate of appreciation from the World's Fair. So I had parents that were, uh, I had the good uh, fortune to have parents who were deeply involved in both my, my and my brother's activities. I went to the University of Connecticut for a summer program after my sophomore year in high school, and the orchestra performed throughout New England. 
The following year, I spent the summer at Oakland University, which is outside Detroit. I got to study with members of the Detroit Symphony. We performed Leonard Bernstein's Chichester Sons under the direction of uh, Robert Shaw. Um, I don't know if, how many of you are familiar with people like that, but Robert Shaw is like one of the premier choral composers and directors in the world, or was. And um, it was really heady stuff to, to be there with him. Even significant life events were marked by music. We all remember where we were when Kennedy was assassinated. I was in my doctor's office being treated for a broken toe after a piano fell on it during a rehearsal at school. I didn't play much in college and law school. When I moved to Auburn, I started my practice and joined the Auburn Chamber Orchestra and played with that group for 15 years. In the mid-1990s, I became interested in jazz. Two of my best friends and I attended uh, jazz camps in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and then you know, I think everybody knows I lived in Belize for quite a while. And when I returned, we lived in Maine for a year, and I joined the Midcoast Symphony Orchestra uh, for a season. When I moved here to Northern Virginia, I joined the Loudoun Jazz Ensemble and the Loudoun Symphony Orchestra. And in the past th th uh, three years, I've attended jazz camps in Rochester, New York. So the question is, and I ask myself this often, why, was it, why am I not a professional musician? It's a question I've thought a lot about over the years. When I was applying to colleges, I filled out three applications to liberal arts colleges and to the Eastman School of Music. I never submitted that last application. I told myself that I didn't want that life. However, there was something much deeper going on, something that still haunts me today. And that is a feeling that I'm a fraud, that people are going to find out that I don't know what I'm doing, that I'm really not skilled at music. In preparing for this talk, I found that these feelings actually have a name called the imposter syndrome, something that was coined in 1978. I know I'm not alone in these feelings. I suspect maybe some of you have felt that in the past. I Googled famous people who suffer from the imposter disorder, and there's a long list of well-known actors and actresses. So in spite of these feelings, I persist. Why music? Why invest so much time and money in this pursuit? Why put myself out there, exposed? Why do I sub subject myself to judgment and criticism? What is it about music? A simple answer is that it's fun. Another answer is that playing can be extremely moving. The Auburn Chamber Orchestra often performed Handel's Messiah with a local choir. Our performances were held at the Willard Memorial Chapel, and the interior of the chapel was designed and handcrafted entirely by the Tiffany Glass Company of New York City. It is the only complete and unaltered, totally Tiffany-designed religious interior known to exist in the world. There's a lot of stained glass. During one rehearsal, there was a snowstorm, and it was thundering and lightning. And while we were playing the Hallelujah Chorus, the lightning lit the stained glass. It was an oral, visual, and emotional experience that has stayed with me for decades. Why can music be so moving? After all, what is music? It's just sound. And what's sound? It's the vibrations of air uh, in waves. In human physiology and psychology, sound is just the reception of the waves and their perception by the brain. Each musical note corresponds to a particular frequency, which is measured in hertz. 
the tuning A we hear from an orchestra is 440 hertz. Some sounds and combinations of sounds can move us and cause a very unique emotional feeling. A friend of mine coined a term called it eargasmic to describe that unique feeling that some sounds can instill. And I'm not even talking about a whole piece of music. I'm just talking about maybe a few chords or a few sequences of notes that in me, I don't know about you, but in me, it's like, I, I, I want to make this face. It's like drinking the sweetest lemonade, but that little tartness in, uh, in there. So I'm just going to go to the piano a sec. But um, here's the tuning A. What? 440A. Not very moving, doesn't do much for us, right? But what if, what if we just take a 147 hertz D, a 174 hertz F, I'm going to do it up here. 220 hertz A, well, you're getting the idea. I don't know about all of you, but that is like a combination of notes just instills feeling in me. Maybe it's calm but there's definitely an emotional component to all that, that eargasmic feeling. To me, and here again I'm borrowing from Keith Richards, it's pure emotion. And what's the most important emotion? The strongest. Although some may agree, I think it's love. The spirit of this church is... The spirit of this church is love. And that's what keeps me playing. I'll conclude with a quote from a blog from the Napa School of Music entitled, Here is Why Music Transcends All Boundaries. Some people believe that music will save the world, and we agree with them. What other form of expression brings people together regardless of their gender, race, and sexual orientation? Something beautiful is born out of music and the soulfulness of it when it is played. And this beauty transcends all barriers. Nothing in all of man's lifetime can be as unifying as good music. Playing a sound to a group of people in Africa and then playing the same to a different group in North America, both groups are going to experience the same emotions as was discovered by two researchers from Canada. Music appeals to that part of the soul that knows no boundaries. All right. We are definitely running short on time. I have gone way over my allotted time here. I was going to have another conversation on the blues. And I'm just going to tell you, for those of you who are blues fans, that blues is, is a 12-bar repeating set of chords. When I went to jazz camp the first time, they said, you've got to know blues in all 12 keys. And I'm thinking to myself, holy mackerel, I can barely know one or two keys. It turns out there's a secret, and the secret is in math, and that's just numbering the notes instead of remembering the notes to know that blues, the repeating, par uh, re repeating uh, uh, chord changes are the first note, the first note in, the, in, the, in the key. So if it was B-flat blues, it would be B-flat, 
and this is just alphabet, the fourth note, which is E flat, then back to the first, the first, the fourth, the fourth, right? And just repeating those numbers. So now I can play in all 12 keys. So that's the blues. So since I'm over, I'm not gonna go much further than that.